Hey, here at Christian Grads Fellowship, we um, we have some core values, uh, and a lot of the podcast is driven by these core values. We develop first century community. We provide spiritual formation for academic leaders. We minister to the whole person. We build leadership, and we integrate our faith and academics in new and exciting ways. So this year at the summit, we had the opportunity to have Dr. Max Baker Hitch from Oxford um, address us as our keynote speaker. And we wanted to share that with you today because we were just so blown away by what Dr. Max Baker Hitch had to say. So sit back and relax. Christian Grads Fellowship Podcast starts right now. So uh, let me start. Yeah, I'll say a little bit about um, kind of my my story, how I came to be doing what I'm doing now. Um, so yeah, I um, I sort of had a, um, a a very loosely Christian upbringing, I would say, um, and uh, by the time I was a teenager, I was sort of losing losing interest in Christianity. By the time I was sort of eighteen, I was actually quite hostile to Christianity. Um, and that wasn't really based on like a deep kind of knowledge of Christianity or sort of particularly having looked into arguments and so on. It was more actually sort of motivated by political views that I held at the time. Um, but in any case, I, um, I went to study uh, philosophy as an undergraduate um, and uh, at the age of 19, and, and I actually became a Christian whilst I was um, studying in my first year. And that was sort of through a combination of, of three factors, I would say, really. One was meeting um, a group of um, Christians in my um, halls of residence, or I guess maybe you guys would call them dorms, um, who, um, you know, I was quite impressed by the the kind of depth of friendship that existed um, amongst those Christians who I met compared with the, um, the type of friendships I had, um, initially formed, which were mostly sort of formed around drinking and that kind of thing. Um, the, the other thing was, um, that, that was sort of going on at the same time as that sort of being drawn to that sense of being quite impressed by the community was starting to look into, um, the intellectual case for Christianity really for the first time. And that was both looking at sort of philosophical arguments for theism, as well as historical arguments for the, the truth of Christianity, but evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and that kind of thing. Now, something that had held me back a bit from becoming a Christian was this kind of fear I had that if I sort of signed up to this worldview, I would be entering into this really limited, constrained universe that would have very kind of narrow parameters. But actually, my my discovery was one of finding that the, the opposite was true, and that suddenly all of these avenues of exploration were opened up. And so I really kind of threw myself into the study of philosophy. And I really Kind of came alive to it in a way that I actually hadn't been when I initially came to study philosophy uh, as a sort of agnostic atheist. Suddenly, becoming a Christian really enlivened my interest in in the field of philosophy, wanting to sort of wrestle with all these these big questions about the nature of existence, knowledge, free will, um, and so on. And actually, just being really excited by the sense that the Christian worldview had credible answers to these questions and actually set forth a kind of vision for what reality was like that really kind of had a lot to offer and, and, and uh, not to say there aren't kind of diff difficult puzzles and questions, but that, that really had a, has a huge amount of explanatory power. So, um, yeah, I, as I said, um, that, that was kind of my undergraduate journey. And then, um, after that, I, I took a year out, I suppose, and I worked as an intern for my church. Then I decided, um, it was during that year, I really sort of felt that God was calling me back to do further study. So I went um, back and did a master's in philosophy of religion. 
and I was pretty sure that I did want to carry on on some kind of academic path. So I applied to different PhD programs and um, I got into to the PhD program in Oxford, which I guess really had been my dream. And I, I had, um, yeah, I had, I had really kind of not expected that one to work out. Um, when I got to Oxford, I was actually really blown away by the number of Christian scholars there who um, I found to be really serious about integrating their faith and their academic disciplines. <clears throat> um, and these were these are scholars across, you know, really a range of different academic fields. And this this kind of was really um, yeah, it was really eye-opening and exciting and inspiring for me because at my previous university where I'd done my undergraduate and master's, which is um, called Exeter University, there were Christian scholars that I was aware of, but not kind of, there was not really much of a sense of like people networking and being really proactive about kind of, um, yeah, seeking out kind of other like-minded believers um, in their faculties or across the university, even just to pray together. There wasn't really that sense of that. And, and so coming to Oxford was really just very inspiring because it, there, there very much is that sense of, um, yeah, academics really kind of um, networking together um, meeting to pray, um, even, you know, having sort of a conference once a year where they actually get together to think about integrating faith and academic study and so on. And, and actually that whole um, initiative in Oxford, and it's called Developing a Christian Mind, was really the fruit of maybe one or two people, key people who had just been praying into it for literally a couple of decades. Um, and it really only came to fruition in the last 10 years. So I think, I think there's a, a lesson there about, um, yeah, how, how it actually doesn't take many people to, to really catalyze something in a place and, and bring about a sense of um, something really quite exciting. So um, since sort of starting my um, PhD program in 2010, and, and then I finished that in 2014, um, I then went on to hold a couple of um, postdoctoral research positions. Um, and one was actually in the States at Notre Dame, and then came back uh, to, to Oxford, about f I guess, five years ago now. Um, and uh, yeah, have been since then um, uh, teaching philosophy at Wycliffe Hall, which uh, is is part of the university, um, and a member of the philosophy faculty, and and also kind of um, very much interested in having a sort of outward facing aspect to what I do. So I, I you know, will sometimes try and um, go on podcasts. Um, you know, have been on uh, Justin Briley's unbelievable show and have done some debates with atheists and that kind of thing. So I, I th it's quite important to me to feel that there's a sense of the stuff I do sort of at the scholarly level, having an outflow at um, the level of a more kind of popular level, if you will. Um, and I guess, yeah, really for the last 10 years, I have been continually grappling with what it looks like to serve Jesus as an academic, um, and in my case, specifically as a philosopher. Um, I've been really blessed along the way to have some amazing mentors um, in the form of, you know, older Christian academics who have modeled for me what it, it looks like to serve Jesus in, in their scholarship. And really in this talk, what I want to do is just start to try to sketch out some of the lines of thought that I've found helpful as I've tried to figure out what it might look like to serve Jesus in the academy. Um, okay, so let me start with um, two observations. Um, so the first observation is that I think in, there is intuitively something about academia that raises a, a set of um, questions that that should challenge us in terms of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to do that particular profession right because if, if you think about it I mean almost any for almost any professional line of work barring 
sort of like obviously criminal professions for almost any profession there's a way to faithfully serve jesus whilst carrying out that profession you know be it an accountant a truck driver a computer programmer um you know whatever uh so think about um colossians 3 verse 23 where paul says whatever you do work at it with all your heart as working for the lord not for human masters so i think we can we can think about verses like that um and the way they sort of seem to exhort all believers basically in whatever type of workplace they find themselves to see their ultimate master if you, if you like their ultimate boss as being christ um and so that's the motivation for kind of doing your work um to the very best of your ability with you know um with honesty integrity and so on uh, you know in a sense irrespective of how uh good or not you know not good your your earthly master is and so presumably all of this applies to the particular um you know profession of academia and yet i think you know for most professions it's it's relatively obvious what it looks like to serve jesus faithfully in that profession um we, you know we don't need conferences and seminar series and you know books and so on on how to be a christian accountant for example no disrespect to accountants uh, it seems i think relatively obvious that to be a christian accountant would be you know to to conduct yourself with honesty integrity diligence uh, and the rest of it so th the first observation i want to make is that we sense i think rightly that there is something about being an academic that calls for a deeper reflection on what it looks like to serve jesus faithfully in this sphere so it it, it makes sense i think that we should have to reflect a bit more deeply in the case of academia on what does it look like to serve jesus faithfully and why is that that we we need to reflect more deeply on this particular profession and what it looks like to serve jesus in this sphere i mean i think various reasons could be given fundamentally i think it's because as academics we carry a certain kind of responsibility and dare I say, I think we're perceived as carrying a certain kind of authority in our culture when it comes to speaking truth about reality. Okay, so that's my first observation, namely that um, there, is a, there is a kind of reflection that is called for uh, when it comes to what the question, what does it look like to be a Christian academic that um, a, a deeper reflection, I think, that's called for in the case of this particular sphere, this particular line of work, than perhaps some other lines of work. A second observation is that when we think about the, the origins of the university, um, you know, when, when the university was originally conceived in medieval Europe, and all of the um the kind of structures and the, the ways of thinking that were embedded into those institutions um and then when we compare that with the, you know the modern university it seems to me that whilst they have a few things in common there are many profound differences and i think it's worth reflecting on some of these differences so you know the the um the the mod the origin of the university really was in in a sense in the monastery um universities were kind of established in medieval europe as basically intellectual monastic communities um if you ever um kind of visit oxford and you go to the 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 central uh, quadrangle in the bodleian library um, they still kind of have the, the medieval Latin names of the different faculties above the various doors around the quad. Um, and of course you've got, uh, and, and the, the biggest uh, sort of the, if you like, the original faculty was the divinity school. And then you've, you've kind of got metaphysics, um, morals, um, natural philosophy, logic, mathematics, and so on. I, and actually, you can get kind of a, a sense of the medieval understanding of 
of the relationship between different areas of intellectual inquiry. Um, in a passage in Thomas Aquinas, um, so um, th this is from book one of, of the Summa Theologica. Aquinas says that sacred doctrine, what we would call theology is a science. We must bear in mind that there are two kinds of sciences. There are some which proceed from a principle known by the natural light of intelligence, such as arithmetic and geometry and the like. And there are some which proceed from principles known by the light of a higher science. Thus the science of perspective proceeds from principles established by geometry, music from principles established by arithmetic and so on. So it is that sacred doctrine is a science because it proceeds from principles established by the light of a higher science namely the science of God and the blessed. Hence, just as the musician accepts on authority the principles uh, taught him by the mathematician, so sacred science is established on principles revealed by God. So interesting passage. So just a few observations here. Um, so it seems that there's a kind of understanding that there are some subject matters that are accessible to the light of natural human reason, sort of just the faculties that we have as uh, you know, qua hum just ordinary human beings. There are some subject matters that are accessible just to our natural cognitive powers as human beings. And there are some that are accessible only by the light of special divine revelation. Another thing you seem to get here in Aquinas is that there is sort of a hierarchy of disciplines or sciences. Um, of course, the Latin word being translated sciences there is scientia, which doesn't sort of really map onto the way we use the word science now. Um, but there, there's a sort of hierarchy of disciplines with the study of sacred doctrine at the very top um, and others sort of falling underneath that. And another, another observation is that there's an understanding that God's testimony is a source of epistemic authority. Um, and indeed, it's sort of the ultimate source of epistemic authority, God's word. So I think that that sort of gives us a, a little window into that medieval understanding of the, uh, the intellectual enterprise. Um, Aquinas, uh, you know, spent a lot of time at the University of Paris, which is you know, one of the oldest universities in Europe. And I think, you know, that we, we get a little bit of a flavor of, of what was the kind of um, worldview underpinning those institutions. Now, there it's, it seems to me clear that there's enormous differences between that vision of what the university was um, and you know, what a university is now. I mean, one just really obvious point is that there are just vastly many more academics today than back then. <clears throat> so academics back then were um, often kind of polymaths, you know, <clears throat> it, it's, um, I always find it kind of amazing to, um, you'd think about the way that, um, you know, pretty much pick any of the sort of medieval or early modern uh, significant figures in, in philosophy. And actually it turns out they made significant contributions to mathematics or astronomy or, or you know, geometry, what have you. Um, they really were kind of um, engaged in quite a wide range of fields of study. Um, whereas if you think about today, the professionalization of academia um, has resulted in a kind of hyper-specialization. So, you know, I, I specialize in the fields of epistemology and philosophy of religion. And, you know, not only could I not make any kind of meaningful contribution to a field far outside those, like, you know, um, I don't know, statistics or, or um, uh, molecular biology, whatever, um, not only could I not like uh, contribute to those fields, I, I can't really even contribute very much to other areas of philosophy, um, apart from the ones that I've been trained in really specifically and, and you know, <clears throat> really deeply immersed myself in that specific literature. Um, 
Now, of course, I think I don't want to sort of say that the 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 professionalization of academia is all bad. Um, you know, for one thing, you know, in theory at least, there are much more rigorous kind of transparent um, quality controls like blind peer review, not, not perfect as we know, but in theory, you know, ensures kind of higher, much higher standards. Um, another thing is, um, you know, academia back then in the Middle Ages was really, and Middle Ages and early modern period was restricted to really a very tiny proportion of society could even consider sort of the life of the, the intellect as a, as a serious sort of career. Um, and, you know, you would often have to have a kind of wealthy patron. So I think something that's really positive about the situation today is that academia is much more open to a wider range of people than it was back then. <clears throat> But, you know, and I've sort of alluded to this already, that the flip side is that hyper-specialization means that people are often hunkered down in their tiny sub-specialism, such that they, they often don't see the forest for the trees. Um, and perhaps relatedly, people so often are just, um, you know, so immersed in their disciplinary paradigm and their methodology that they, they often kind of never think to step outside or step back and question those methodologies and paradigms. Um, so I think, you know, there some huge differences between the medieval university and the modern university. Perhaps the biggest difference of all is that in the modern university, um, and, you know, and I think this even, I mean, I spent a year at Notre Dame, um, which is in a sense a Christian university, but, but even there, I think there's a sense that no longer as an academic at that institution, are you working in a context where a Christian meta-narrative is just sort of taken for granted as the underpinning to the very academic enterprise itself. And insofar as Christianity gets a mention at all in the modern academy, it's typically as an object of historical or sociological study. Um, and insofar as it gets a look in as an explanatory framework, um, which, you know, it um, occasionally does, um, particularly in, in a field like philosophy of religion, um, it's just one option at a large buffet of worldviews and theoretical frameworks that are being considered. And in some quarters, of course, it's a disreputable option at that. So here's what I want to suggest. Our modern situation is much more akin to that of Paul in first century Athens or Corinth or Ephesus than Thomas Aquinas in 13th century Paris. So, and that, that's actually kind of um, an exciting thing, I think, because it, to me, it suggests that we're actually quite a lot closer to the situation of the Acts Church than the medievals were. So I want to spend a bit of time doing two things. Firstly, I want to try and sketch the outlines, <clears throat> but really just the bare outlines of a theology of Christ's Lordship overall, um, which I think is absolutely fundamental to our task as, as Christian academics. And I think that, that that vision of Christ's lordship over all things is um, articulated nowhere more clearly than in uh, chapter one of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Secondly, I think we can draw some lessons from the way that Paul sets out his stall, so to speak, when he engaged with people in the intellectual spheres of the first century Greco-Roman world. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of uh, lessons for us to take away from the way that Paul goes about his interactions in places like Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and so on. Okay, so let me start um, by kind of trying to, to sketch some, the, the outlines of a, of a theology of Christ's lordship over all things. So let me read out um, uh, Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 uh, through 20. 
So it says, uh, he, Christ, that is, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created <clears throat> in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, and, and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, so I think, I mean, there's so much in this passage um, that I can only really scratch the surface. Um, so, I mean, one thing is that, you know, lots of the commentators on this passage note that it seems like Jesus is being, uh, the, the imagery being used to talk about Jesus in this passage is very much drawing on this tradition in, in, uh, in Second Temple Judaism of talking about the wisdom of God. Um, so Jesus is being, is being uh, depicted as, as in his particular role as the, the wisdom of God in this passage. Um, and of course, also the, the, you know, an articulation of this idea of Jesus as the visible manifestation of God's very nature. So the, this idea of, um, you know, the, the, the invisible God um, about whom, you know, we, we don't know very much, but Jesus kind of suddenly makes that God very concrete and visible for us. Um, and then, of course, another theme being Jesus' authority over all things. Um, so this, there's this really strong sense that the authority and power of anything here in this age, um, intellectual authorities included, is, is a kind of temporary authority, authority that is lent and will ultimately be taken back. Um, it all belongs to Jesus. And then this, this uh, really interesting um, theme or, or thought that in Jesus, all things hold together. Um, and I think, and this kind of uh, links and, and sort of echoes a lot in, in John 1, of course, when it talks about um, Jesus as the logos, the, the sort of rational principle of existence itself. Um, this thought that Jesus as the eternal logos um, is the very is the one in whom all things make sense apart from him nothing so much as has meaning co you know coheres can be rationally intelligible whatsoever so jesus is the origin of all rationality intelligibility purpose meaning and everything finds its purpose in him and, and also i kind of get this sense that there's this um you know, of course, for Paul, uh, he's uh, facing considerable opposition at various points in his missionary journeys. So for Paul, there's this obvious sense that the current state of affairs is one in which um, Christ is not everywhere at the moment acknowledged as Lord over all things, even though he in fact is Lord over all things. But the final state of, of the world will be one in which Jesus' lordship over all things is manifest. So what kind of lessons can we take from this? Um, let me just kind of draw out three things. So one thing I want to say is that you know, it seems really clear that a lesson we should take from this passage is that there, there's no place for a sacred secular divide. Now, what do I mean by that exactly? Well, what I mean by that is that we, we mustn't allow ourselves to slip into a mindset in which we view some academic disciplines, let's say engineering, uh, economics, um, you know, nanomaterials. Um, we shouldn't view some academic disciplines as concerned with spheres that somehow fall outside of the realm of Jesus' lordship. 
just because in they sort of don't obviously kind of call for any talk of God or, or and so on. Um, you know, we shouldn't do that. And then sort of on the other hand, think of some subjects as being within Jesus' lordship because they explicitly talk about Christianity, um, New Testament studies, systematic theology, for example. Instead, we need to have a vision in which all academic disciplines kind of presuppose that reality is rationally intelligible. It's susceptible to rational inquiry. Even those fields in which you know, many are inclined to end up concluding that we know very little about reality, you know, some of the humanities that have been influenced by late French thought very heavily, even those fields have actually presuppose that we are at least able to frame the questions meaningfully. Um, and this presupposes that there is such a thing as, as rationality and meaning. So the claim that Paul is articulating in Colossians 1 and which John is articulating in John 1 is that apart from Jesus, the eternal logos, there is no rationality, intelligibility, meaning whatsoever. And I think that's the vision that we need to have in front of us if we are to properly orient ourselves in relation to our academic disciplines. That's to say whatever aspect of reality our discipline is investigating, the very possibility of even asking the questions, let alone beginning to answer them, is grounded in Jesus, the eternal Logos. A slightly related point is to do with authority. So it may not feel like it, but as an academic, you carry a certain kind of authority. Certainly in the eyes of our culture, I think, um, there is a significant prestige and cachet that comes with being a specialist in a field of scholarship. Um, people will tend to listen more carefully to what you have to say about your area of specialism because you carry a certain kind of authority in that area. Now, of course, what Colossians 1 seems to be saying is that all authority ultimately derives from Christ. Any authority we have is a kind of borrowed authority and we will be ultimately answerable for how we've used that authority before Jesus. What it also means is that academics who, you know, use their platforms to attack the gospel, well, they too will ultimately have to answer to Jesus for how they've used the authority that they have been given. And um, a, a third point, is, is to do with this, this line about everything holding together in him. I don't know about you, but you know, I find that scholarship can sometimes be hard graft. And sometimes it's really exhilarating. You know, and if it wasn't, I wouldn't want to be an academic. But other times it feels like you really kind of lose inspiration when you're lost in the weeds of some intricate debate about some tiny point of detail or you know, just spending hours kind of on footnotes, um, stuff that you know hardly anyone will notice, but you know you have to get right because you just do. Um, and so I think what I want to say is that if, if it's true that all things hold together in Christ, then we have, a, we have a special kind of rationale or motivation for persevering when it's, a, when it's kind of hard graft. You know, all things, even this footnote that I've spent a day working on, but that seems so kind of obscure in the grand scheme of things. All things matter and all things will take their place in this cosmic canvas that Christ is painting on. Okay, so that's kind of um, all I'll say by way of trying to, to sketch the outlines of a, a theology of Christ's lordship overall, which I think is you know, we really need to have this theological vision as the underpinning um, of our, our work as academics, whatever field we're in. So let me go on to, to say some things about some lessons that we might be able to draw from Paul's engagements in the, the learned realms of the first century Greco-Roman world. Because as I said, I think that 
the situation that we find ourselves in today uh, in the modern West is actually a lot more similar to the situation of the apostles in the first century Greco-Roman world than it is to figures like Aquinas in medieval Europe, um, which is to say um, we're in a, a context which is now much more pluralistic in the sense that you know, Christianity, at least in, in the academy, is, is not sort of considered to be um, the default worldview. And, and if, if anything, it's, um, it, you know, it, it's uh, maligned in many contexts. Um, similarly, in, you know, in the first century Greco-Roman world, Christianity was this seemingly, you know, this offshoot of Judaism, but it was attracting Gentiles and, and you know, often people uh, would, would have very negative views of Christians and, and would think they're antisocial. There were, you know, rumors that they engaged in cannibalism. Um, and yet these Christians were quite keen to go out there and sort of set out their stall, as it were, and engage in, in the, the agora, the, the kind of marketplace of ideas. And, and you see that Paul is very keen to enter these inter influential um, platforms in, in order to, to present the Christian message. Um, so, so I think that, that there's a lot that we can take from um, the, the kind of narratives and acts about um, Paul's engagements in these, in these places. So in particular, I'm thinking of Acts 17 through 19, <clears throat> which follows Paul's missionary activities in some of the most culturally significant uh, centers of the Roman Empire. So of course, there's Athens, um, you know, Paul's uh, visit to Mars Hill, uh, the, the um, Areopagus in Acts 17. Then he, he spends uh, a decent amount of time in Corinth in Acts 18. And then in, uh, in Acts 19, he, he winds up in Ephesus spending over two years. Um, so, I mean, just worth saying a little bit about each of these cities. <clears throat> so Athens was, you know, past its glory days. Um, by, by the time of the first century AD. So the, you know, the glory days being the, 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 the age of the great philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Zeno, and so on. So, uh, you know, the, the glory days are in the past for Athens, but nonetheless, it's still seen in the first century as a very important symbol of the philosophical enterprise. Um, and, it, it, you know, Athens is still kind of basking in that glory. Um, Corinth was uh, a major kind of trading hub. It actually had, you know, um, it was refounded in 44 BC. So in a sense, the city of Corinth, as it was when Paul came there, had not been around for that long. Um, but because of its location, so, you know, there's this kind of tiny little um, bit of land joining two much larger pieces of land in modern day Greece. And there's and this piece of land, this little strip of land, which is known as an isthmus. Um, and Corinth is located right there between on, on the, the one side, the Aegean Sea, and on the other, the Mediterranean. So um, it became very uh, very quickly prosperous after it was founded because of all the trade passing through it from the Aegean Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. It was really a kind of booming center of culture, the arts and so on. Um, you know, so if, if um, Athens was, was like, a, I don't know, an ancient version of, um, well, I'm biased, of course, so like Oxford, um, Corinth might be more like a modern day version of New York. Um, and then there's Ephesus. So um, Ephesus was the fourth city of the, the Roman Empire. Um, it was, but it was also the most populous city of the most pro prosperous and heavily populated province of the empire, Asia Minor. So a, another very culturally significant city. So, you know, in Acts 17, um, Paul has the opportunity to address the Areopagus, which was Athens' chief court consisting of maybe a hundred members. And they had the authority to evaluate new cults that were entering the city. 
and to evaluate official lecturers who were seeking platforms in the city of Athens. And so, of course, Paul gives this speech in which he sort of starts off by identifying a number of points of common ground with his audience's worldview, especially the Stoic worldview. So Paul alludes to this idea of a God who is present everywhere, um, <clears throat> that, you know, uh, and that we are his offspring. Uh, he actually quotes um, some of their own poets, um, and that we live and move and have our being in him. So the idea that God is not just one more object within the universe, but that actually God underpins and upholds the universe's very being. And Paul uses this common ground uh, with Stoicism as a launching off point to unpack the distinctive Christian claim that God has come in the form of a man whom he raised from the dead and who will ultimately be the judge of humanity. Now, some people in the audience mock this, this claim about resurrection, which you know, would have been kind of anathema to Greek philosophers. Um, others in the audience misunderstand Paul as proclaiming two gods, one called Jesus and one called resurrection. And some respond favorably, um, namely Dionysius and Damaris. You know, in Acts 18, then uh, Paul ends up in Corinth. Um, and, you know, the first thing he does when he gets there is sort of he finds some some co-laborers, as it were, uh, a Jewish Christian couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And he he, um, you know, puts his hand to uh, manual labor where necessary, his, uh, you know, tent making, as it's referred to, um, in order to support his preaching. <clears throat> when necessary. And he ends up staying there for a significant amount of time. Um, and he leads several influential Jewish figures in the city to Jesus, um, as well as encountering some significant opposition. And in Acts 19, Paul travels to Ephesus, having made a quick trip back to Jerusalem. And in Ephesus, he gathers some disciples, sends them out and spends two years in the city during which it says that he regularly gives, gives sort of talks and discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Um, and, and so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And that makes sense that, that um, because Ephesus was such a hub for ideas and trade that the gospel message would have spread out quite rapidly from Ephesus to the rest of the province. Okay, so I want to, um, Again, there, there's so much that could be said about these passages, and I'm only really skimming the surface. <clears throat> I want to draw out uh, seven points, um, seven sort of observations or thoughts. So one is that Paul's pattern when he arrives in a place generally is to try and find people who already trust in Jesus or who are particularly receptive to the gospel to work alongside. Secondly, you know, we often have this image of Paul sort of hopping from place to place in Acts, hardly spending any time putting down roots. But actually, you know, when you look more closely, it says that he spent 18 months in Corinth and over two years in Ephesus, which is easily enough time to have built some kind of significant community. <clears throat> A third point is that when necessary, Paul works hard at his trade of tent making in order to financially support himself. Fourthly, he seeks out opportunities to address audiences in places of influence, um, the Areopagus in Athens, the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. Fifthly, he adapts the way he presents the gospel message, not the message itself, but the way he presents it, to depending on the, the audience he's speaking with. Um, so he finds points of commonality with their worldview. He adapts his rhetorical style. Uh, so he uses quite highbrow Greek when he's speaking in the Areopagus. But he's not shy about the points of departure, in particular, um, Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. The sixth thing is that, you know, the reactions he gets are mixed. You know, there are some scoffers. There are some people who are sort of intrigued and want to hear him again. And there are some people who respond positively very quickly. And the seventh point is that 
Paul finds others to mentor. Um, Apollos in Corinth, several unnamed disciples in Ephesus. So I think there's there's a lot here for us to think about. So you know, corresponding to each of these seven observations, I think there are there are quite you know ready applications that that we can draw out already. So you know, firstly, I think you know a really important thing is that we we seek out other Christians in our in our institution, even if it's just a couple of others that we meet with regularly to pray. A second thing is you know, being really serious about investing in community with with our colleagues um, and not in a kind of instrumentalist way, but because we really care about them and want to get to know them as people. A third thing is sort of the value of and, and the importance of being a good citizen in our in our department. So, you know, taking on our fair share of academic admin, marking, uh, grading, um, the, the stuff that's not very fun, but it sort of um, really contributes to that sense of kind of doing our fair share. <clears throat> um, and, and kind of um, really helping our colleagues to see that, that we care about the, the unglamorous side of, um, of kind of running an academic department. The corresponding to the fourth point about seeking out places of influence to to proclaim the, the Christian message. Now, I think that, you know, there's there's definitely room here for discernment about when is a good time and a good opportunity. Now, I, I absolutely want to affirm the value of playing the long game and and, no, and, and seeing that, you know, there are some situations in which sort of putting your head above the parapet, doing a, a Christian talk, um, for example, right before your tenure panel or before your PhD dissertation committee, um, might be unwise. But equally, I would, I would urge against the idea that, um, you know, you have to get totally established in your field first, you know, um, get tenure and you know basically completely you know have everything in place before you kind of even breathe a word to your colleagues about your faith fifthly um in terms of the way that paul adapts the gospel the, the way he presents the gospel message to the audience he's speaking with you know i think there's there's su such uh it's, it's tremendously important to know our audience um you know to, to, to kind of have that sense of, you know, people in the natural sciences have different um, kind of ways of doing things than people in the social sciences. And yet again, in people in the humanities um, have been influenced by particular streams of thought that will, should make us aware of um, certain things to avoid or certain things to emphasize and so on. So we really kind of need to, to have that sense of who we're talking to and how that should shape the way in which we present the gospel to them, whether that's just in a one-on-one -on -one conversation or perhaps, you know, in some form of talk that you might have the opportunity to give and so on. And the sixth thing is, you know, to expect a mixture of reactions just in the same way that Paul had a mixture of reactions. And seventhly, be on the lookout for people who are kind of even um, further back than you, people who are younger than you, um, who are wanting to kind of be serious about following Jesus in the academic sphere and, and look out for how they could benefit from your mentorship. So I think, uh, again, there's, a, there's so much more that could be said, but that, that's, that's sort of um, all, all that I'll say about trying to draw out some some lessons from from Paul's interactions in those intellectual spheres. So I want to say a little bit briefly um, on what does it look like concretely to um, to be a Christian scholar, and I really want to say here there's a kind of there's a garden of possibilities, um, and I think that um, none of these these tasks is inherently superior or more spiritual than any other. And I think that, you know, if we have that theological vision of Jesus' lordship over all things, 
it will really help us to get away from the idea that someone who's um, sort of a, a philosopher of religion or a New Testament scholar who's making arguments specifically for Christian truth claims is sort of serving Jesus in a much stronger way than someone who's just doing really good work in nanomaterials. I think we really need to get away from that if we have this vision of Jesus' lordship over everything. So, you know, I think one kind of task that a Christian academic could be involved in, of course, is that more explicit kind of putting forward uh, arguments for specifically Christian truth claims. So, um, you know, we, there are brilliant scholars in the field of New Testament studies who have really shifted kind of the, the pendulum in terms of the sense, the, the general sense in, of that, in that field of, of New Testament scholarship of how historically reliable the Gospels are. Um, and, um, you know, in, in the specific kind of debate around um, the, uh, you know, Jesus' death and then what followed it, you know, of course, um, you know, non-Christian scholars are going to be skeptical about the claim that Jesus' resurrection is the best explanation for the empty tomb and the sort of disciples' conviction that they'd seen Jesus. But there is a serious debate to be had there. And there are, you know, you will find scholars like Giza Vermesh, a, a Jewish uh, scholar, who, not a Christian who acknowledges that this is a serious historical question. So all that to say, yeah, there's absolutely a place for Christians who are kind of advancing um, the credibility of specific Christian truth claims, you know, the, be it the historicity of the New Testament um, or philosophically the, the arguments for theism and so on. But of course, there's also, um, you know, a place for for sort of making the case for claims that indirectly support the Christian worldview. For example, arguing for a non-reductive view of the mind, um, arguing for realism about various domains such as morality um, or mathematics, um, arguing for a theory of personhood that is sort of resident with the idea of humans being in the image of God. Um, arguing for an economic model that promotes shalom, if you like. Um, that's another type of task that a Christian academic could be engaged in. Another sort of thing, and I, I think it, you could say this is more at the boundary between being a scholar and being an artist, but I think the task of sort of enlivening the human imagination, inclining it heavenwards, which is, I think, something that, you know, Lewis and Tolkien did to the nth degree. But that, that sense of you know, making the Christian worldview credible by awakening the imagination to this whole other dimension of reality. But then, and I think in a sense, this really applies to, to, to Christians in any field of academia. Um, and and I, as I said, I really want to, I can't emphasize enough how much I think this is as important as all the other things I've mentioned. Finding out the truth about some aspect of God's world. If we are serious about thinking that, that all truth is God's truth, all reality is God's reality, then any, any, in any kind of investigation, whatever field it is in, is about finding out about the world that God has created. So um, I think, you know, so the, the last thing that I want to mention briefly is, is something that, that, it, that is important, I think, to think about, especially when you're doing your PhD and beginning to think about, you know, what's next career-wise. Um, and that's to say that I, I think something that, that we have to honestly reckon with is, is how difficult the academic jobs market is. Um, <clears throat> and, and I want to sort of um, say this in a way that isn't isn't kind of a, a discouragement from having a, 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 you know, having a really wholehearted go at the academic jobs market. And, and in a sense, you know, how long you, you um, keep trying, how many um, years you, you kind of keep doing applications and so on is, is sort of between you and God. And I, I don't think there's any kind of 
rule or, or advice that I could really give on, you know, how long do you, do you keep at it? But I think it's to, to reckon with the fact that the academic jobs market is very difficult and, and it's got, you know, even more difficult because of COVID. So I think all that to say, um, it, it might not be possible to get a full-time academic position on a 10-year track, but that can be okay. And I think what I want to say, in the, in the, and this is the last couple of minutes I'll take, um, is that it's, I think we, we need to begin to be much more creative in thinking about ways to still be an academic in a meaningful sense, contributing to a field of scholarship without having a tenured or tenure track academic position. I think in my discipline of philosophy, people are becoming quite a lot more open to ways of being a philosopher that don't involve having a tenured position. And just give you one example, a good friend of mine, um, Callum Miller. So he's actually a medical doctor and his, his sort of tent making is working as a, a general practitioner um, in hospitals. Um, and yet he has kind of, um, in a sense, as a hobby, but a serious hobby, he has kind of um, really kept his finger on the pulse of what's going on in philosophy of religion to the point that he, you know, writes maybe up to three papers a year and, um, and gets them published in, in good journals. He, you know, he goes to various conferences. Um, he's involved in various Facebook groups for you know people who work in those fields. And so in a very real sense, he's contributing to that field, even though his actual day job is, is a medical doctor. So, so just some, some final thoughts. So, you know, um, once you, once you've got your PhD, um, if, if you're not able to end up landing a tenure track position, it's nonetheless, it shouldn't be too difficult to obtain some kind of affiliation to a department. Um, even if it's just research associate or something like that, I think that's still really worth having. It still kind of keeps your foot in, in the door. And it also, of course, there's adjunct teaching, which especially in the US, that there's certainly lots of adjunct teaching um, available. So, you know, it may be that it's necessary to combine adjunct teaching or some kind of associate affiliation with uh, some form of tent making work, whatever that is. Um, and I think that, that there are several really important things that will help retain that sense that you are still a member of that, you know, kind of community of scholars. So one is, you know, simple things like joining Facebook groups for people in, in your field or <clears throat> whatever, you know, um, whatever it is that people in your, your field use, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or, or whatever. Another thing is trying to keep up with at least one or two important journals in your field. And then if you can, and I, I know how time consuming this is, trying to publish at least one peer reviewed paper or chapter per year. And also if you can, trying to attend at least one conference in your field per year. <clears throat> so all that to say, I think that it is very possible <clears throat> to be a scholar in a meaningful sense. And that I, I should caveat that with saying, I think this is easier to do in fields that don't require being in a lab to carry them out. Um, but I think that it is very possible to be a scholar without having a formal, you know, paid position at a university. And I think it's really important to kind of think creatively about that and, and not be discouraged by the fact that the ac academic job market is difficult. Um, and, and to see that there, there really are ways um, that, that it's possible to be a, a scholar in a real sense, um, despite kind of the difficult situation that we find ourselves in. Okay, so um, I think with that, um, uh, that's all I have to say. And I think we can um, go to time of questions. So uh, we really hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation with Max. Um, he is an absolutely incredible scholar. 
Um, and we were really, really fortunate to have him come speak to us at our summit this year. Uh, if you like content like this, um, if you find content like this useful and meaningful, um, you know, it's only available because we have really, really amazing partners like you. So what we'd love is for you to head on over to, to christiangrads.org, uh, make a donation of any size, um, and that's just going to help us uh, you know, keep producing this kind of content as we grow um, and add new universities to, uh, to what we do. Um, the other thing you can do for us is it, you know, whatever, whatever podcast uh, system you're listening to this on, if you could just give us a, a five-star uh, rating on that, um, that doesn't do anything for us other than it extends our reach and it helps more people find the podcast. Um, so if you could do that for us, we'd be really, really appreciative. Um, and in the meantime, we appreciate you uh, spending a little bit of time with us. Um, hope that you'll uh, come back next week. We'll have uh, more great, uh, more great content here for you. Um, and in the meantime, go in peace.